Back in 1988, a Polish railroad worker named Jan Grebski fell into a coma. He was only fully in the coma for four years, but he didn't, he didn't recover completely until 2007. Uh, you might know Poland was a, a communist country in 1988. Um, it wasn't directly part of the USSR. It was a satellite state. But that's the world when Mr. Grebski <clears throat> fell into his coma. And by the time he had recovered, the world had changed a lot. Later in an interview, he said this. When I went into a coma, there was only tea and vinegar in the shops. Meat was rationed. Huge lines for gasoline were everywhere. Now I see people on the streets with cell phones. There's so many goods in the shops, it makes my head spin. What amazes me is all these people who walk around with their mobile phones and never stop moaning. I don't know about you, that stings me a bit. I, I, I see that in myself discontent. I'm not proud of it. Good morning. Uh, it's been just over two years since I've been able to share with you, uh, worship with you, and it's, it's been a time, hasn't it? <clears throat> I'm not going to say that those two years weighed evenly on me, um, but I will say I'm very happy to be back. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Josh Miller. I'm the executive director of Mahoning Valley Christian Service Camp up in Rushville, um, this church has been partnering with Mahoning Valley and sending campers for a long time. Um, and if you're a part of the church here, the, the, the church even pays for your kids to come to camp, and you're probably ready to get them out of the house, right? Um, so you can go on, you can sign up online right now, mahoningvalley.org. Uh, please don't do it during the service. There's a timestamp on the registration. I will know if you did. Um, but I'm here this morning to share with you about the camp and what our summer will look like. Um, we are having camp this summer. It will be a little bit different than in years past. Um, between some of the physical changes we've made and some tweaks to how we operate, uh, we should have a great time. We're going to be spending even more time in the outdoors, uh, basically all of our time. And so we've, we've added some additional outdoor spaces together. We call this an octo swing. Uh, it's very popular, including with our neighbors who currently walk down and sit in the swings still. So it's, it's, it's a happening place. Um, our teaching times this summer will be focused around the idea that worship is focused. Worshiping God requires making him the top priority in our lives. And because that's what we're going to be teaching about all summer, I want to spend some time on that same topic with you this morning. I want to do that by opening the Bible and taking a look at the life of David. Um, we could probably spend a hundred sermons focused on how David worshipped, but you would hate me, and I'm only here one week anyway. So we're just going to look at three instances in David's life. These are all in the book of 2 Samuel. If you want to turn there in your Bible or digital Bible, uh, they will be up on the screen, but I think it's good for you to see it for yourself. You guys are familiar with David's story, right? Um, shepherd boy, anointed to be the next king of Israel, faithfully faced down the Philistine giant champion Goliath, served as king for 40 years, wrote a bunch of psalms. In Acts 13, verse 22, the apostle Paul, in one of his own sermons, calls David a man after God's own heart. David certainly wasn't perfect, 
but I think we can learn about worshiping God from looking at David's life. That's our structure for this morning. First place I want to look is at 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is after David has already become king, but it's really the conclusion to a story that started before Saul had become king. And Saul was king for a long time. 1 Samuel 13, 1 in most English translations says Saul was king for 42 years. If you look at the translator's notes at the bottom of the page there, they're going to tell you, we don't actually know what that number is. It was written weird. But Saul was king for a long time. The Ark of the Covenant was a special thing for the Israelite people. It was constructed in the time of Moses. It was a container for sacred relics, including the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And it was the place where God met with his people. It was, it was a throne for God. The other people groups that lived around the Israelites, whoops, um, the other people groups that lived around the Israelites thought that their gods could be contained in a carved stone or carved wooden idol. And the ark is one of the ways that God taught us that he cannot be contained or constrained by anything, but that he does want to be with us. So the ark was a symbol of God's presence with the people. Anyway, just before Saul became king, the ark was captured by a neighboring nation, the Philistine people. And when the Israelites got it back, they didn't really know what to do with it. So they just kind of stuck it into a nearby guy's house for safekeeping. Many years later, when David became king of all of Israel, he wanted to return the people to worshiping the Lord, our God. And so David wanted to bring the ark back to a place of prominence among the people. He wanted to make it a central thing, just like it had been. So he takes all the young men of the nation, the, these are the guys who would have made up the army, and he goes and retrieves the ark and he loads it into a cart and he starts bringing it back. And they do have a setback that stops progress for a few months, but I'm going to skip over it because we don't need it for this morning and we will get lost on that tangent for a long time and we're just going to skip it. This process of bringing the ark to Jerusalem, when they come into the city, is probably the best-known party scene of the Old Testament. David's out among the people. He's dancing, and he's celebrating that the Lord's presence is going to be a central thing for the people. But David's wife, Michael, um, who was the daughter of King Saul, she was not impressed with how David was handling himself as the new king. 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting at verse 20. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation because this is the one where I can read it without stumbling over my words. That's the reason I picked this translation. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord, who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord, yes, and I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think that I'm distinguished. Michael had an idea of what she thought a king should look like. 
And I'm betting it was basically exactly her dad, right? That was the king she grew up with. Everybody thinks your dad is, is pretty good, right? Um, David didn't want to be like Saul. He didn't care if he looked silly or if he seemed unregal. You know what I mean. That's not a word. Don't look it up. <clears throat> David was giving thanks to God. Didn't matter what other people thought of him because it wasn't about him. It was about putting the focus on God. This celebration was David's uh, kickoff to his reign, coming out as king party. And rather than dignifying himself, David, David chose to make the focus on giving thanks to God. Next passage I want to look at has us turning not very far. We're going just to the very next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And really, it's the next story we have in David's life. David has brought the ark to Jerusalem, the capital of the nation. He set it up in a tent, just like it had always been when it was set up in the tabernacle. And we're going to read at 2 Samuel chapter 7, just starting at verse 1. When King David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God's out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, go ahead, do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. And this is just me making an assumption, but I don't think David slept much that night. I've been involved in several building projects at the camp, and when we get the okay to do something, that's, that's not a time to relax. That's a time where you're thinking of building materials and maybe windows and how you're going to place them so you get good sunlight. And, I mean, David's, David's talking about building in a city. So I'm guessing he was walking around. I was like, okay, if we put it at the end of this street, we're going to have to move them so we can widen the road because it's going to be very important. Where are we going to put them? Like, I think David was making plans. But it wasn't meant to be. Let's keep reading at verse 4. That same night, the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I've never lived in a house. From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day, I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth, and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure nation where they will never be disturbed. The evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors... I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring. I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. 
and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. And your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in this vision. That was, that was mixed, right? Mostly positive. Good news there. God is going to, uh, he's going to keep David's family on the throne. He's not going to give up on David like he did on Saul. Oh, but that awesome temple you wanted to build, you have to die before that can happen. You don't get to build that. You don't get to see it. And that has to be a little bit disappointing. David has recently become king. He has tried to make God central for the people by returning the ark to the place of prominence. He hopes to go even further and build a temple. And if you read much history, there's a trait that tends to show through in kings pretty broadly. Kings are not well known for, for being good sports when someone tells them no. Uh, in Esther's story, Queen Vashti was banished replaced because she told the king no. <clears throat> uh, Henry VIII of England was told he had no proper grounds to annul his wife, and he kicked off centuries of violence in Britain. And here we have David being told not to build this temple he wanted to build. How does David respond? 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat down before the Lord and prayed. Who am I, O sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty? Do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, sovereign Lord. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. We've never even heard of another God like you. What other nation on earth is like your people Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles. You drove out the nations and gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your very own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, I am your servant. Do as you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever. And may your name be honored forever so that everyone will say, the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, I have been bold enough to pray this prayer before you because you have revealed all this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For you, God, you are God, O sovereign Lord. Your words are truth. You have promised these good things to your servant. And now may it please you 
to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue before you forever. You have spoken, and when you grant a blessing to your servant, O sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. That's not how kings respond. David came up with a plan, he decided to implement it, and then God told him no. And David accepted that no graciously. To be fair, that awesome promise maybe took the edge off of it. But it's not like David just forgot about this idea. He didn't just say, oh, well, whatever, it was nothing. He still dreamed about this temple. He still longed for it. You know how I know? Turn with me real quick to Psalm 30, and we're going to take a look at verse 0. Yes, I know there's nothing in there labeled verse 0, but those little subtitles on the Psalms, those are original. Those are in the Hebrew, and so when you want to reference that information, you call it verse 0. Psalm 30, verse 0, says this. A psalm of David, a song for the dedication of the temple. So that means sometime after David knew he had to die before the temple could be built, he still wanted to honor God when the temple finally was constructed. And so after Nathan told David he wasn't supposed to build the temple, David's response was to go into the tent he had pitched for the ark, this temporary tabernacle, and give thanks to God, yes, for the promise, but also directly in the face of being told, no, you can't do this thing you want. Even when he was told no to one of his biggest plans, David chose to worship. The third story I want to look at is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, and I want to give this warning. <clears throat> These next few minutes could be difficult for any of you who have experienced miscarriage or stillborn or infant loss and you are not going to offend me or anyone else if you want to get up and go outside and, and not hear this part um, nobody's going to make you talk about it later if you don't want to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is, is one of those that you might be familiar with if you've been in the church for a while I'm going to recap it quickly uh, one day, David's on his roof looking around. He notices a woman, Bathsheba, who's taking a bath. Despite the fact that she's already married, and he had, I think, seven wives at this point, he sent servants to go get her, and he slept with her. And then because she got pregnant, he tried to cover up his sins, and that compounds into murder, into David telling his soldiers to just make sure her husband gets killed in battle. Obviously, that's not good. And God sent the prophet Nathan to call David out on his sin and announce the punishment. Let's start reading 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. 
He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do now that the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went into the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. He went into the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. Seriously? That was his response to his baby dying. I need to tell you about two of my dearest friends. Uh, Mike was my roommate for two summers. Uh, when we were, in, we were college students, we both worked at a youth camp together. Um, years later, I got to be part of performing his, his wedding with his wife, Carrie. And she is one of my wife's very best friends in the whole world. I asked their permission to share this with you. But I think if the roles had been reversed, I would have had a hard time saying yes. Back in the spring of 2019, Carrie became pregnant with their second child. It was exciting. Their first daughter had just turned five. They were ready for a second baby. At 20 weeks, something happened. I don't know the medical term for it. I couldn't pronounce it anyway. Um, but something happened so that the baby didn't have enough amniotic fluid to develop properly. And Carrie had a bleed behind the placenta. She had a surgery of some sort. She was put on home rest. Uh, and even with all those things, that they knew that the chances of a good outcome were slim. She carried the baby to 26 weeks. And then it was to the point where the baby, Vivian, was not going to develop anymore in the womb. So the plan was to try to have her develop in an incubator. For six weeks, Carrie lay in a bed and didn't get out for basically anything. For six weeks, Mike worked full-time, was a caretaker of his wife, and was a solo parent of a five-year-old girl, Audrey. When Vivian was born, she was 13 inches long, weighed one pound, 12 ounces, and she lived for seven hours. Two days later, Carrie wrote this. While the rest of her body was strong and healthy, and she was absolutely beautiful, her lungs were just not developed enough for this world. Sometimes the miracle and outcome we pray for do not come true, but that does not mean our prayers were not heard. We met her, we learned from her, and she was here. All of that was a miracle. That being said, this is a grief and pain I have never known, and we are all at a loss. The next week was Vivian's funeral. Uh, basically, nobody in attendance had ever met her. But we love Mike, we love Carrie, we love Audrey, we want to support them. And it was a funeral unlike anything I had ever experienced. 
it was a time of worship, unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And for the rest of my life, I will never associate the song, Blessed Be Your Name, with anything else. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering where there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Mike and Carrie and their families and friends sang that song together and we meant it. I had read David's story 25 years before, but I didn't understand it. Not really. I, I've never had a child. But this happened to people that I love. And the weight of David's story started to make sense. After Vivian died, I don't think worship was a natural response. Mike and Carrie didn't do that because... It's the kind of thing anybody would have done in their situation. Bitterness would have been more natural. That's not what they chose. When David's child died, he didn't choose bitterness. He didn't choose to indulge himself. He chose to get up and to go into the tabernacle, into the presence of the Lord, and worship. And I think this is the primary lesson about worship from David's life. No matter what happened, David chose to give God thanks. When things were good, God's presence was obvious among the people. David rejoiced in the Lord. When he wasn't getting his way, David praised God. And when something really bad and difficult and deeply hurtful happened... David's response was still to turn to God and to praise him anyway. We need to be a people who will choose to worship and thank our Heavenly Father like David did. In all situations. We choose to recognize God's blessings. And we choose to thank him for them. This is something we need to do in our lives on a regular basis. Paul's instruction, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. Paul tells us, always be thankful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. I want to be honest. These last 13 months or so have been pretty difficult for me. Other people have had it much worse, undoubtedly. Um... But in some ways, the, the pandemic took away some of the things I have used to define myself as a person. We weren't able to have camp last summer. Before that, the last time I didn't spend a whole summer with campers, I was 18 years old. I had a full head of hair and a baby face. Building and maintaining a campground makes a lot less sense when nobody is allowed to come out and use it. I had, I had difficulty mowing grass, knowing that nobody was going to play on it before it had to be cut again. I was discouraged. But David's life shows us that worshiping God and giving thanks to God is 0% about our circumstances 
100% about choosing to do it. That doesn't mean it's always easy, but it is always important. One of my favorite books is a short little thing by Louis Giglio called The Air I Breathe. Our, our summer camp teaching plan for this summer is, is structured similarly to this book. And Louis defines worship this way. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. I want the people who spend time at Mahoning Valley with us this summer, both the campers, the volunteers, our staff, everyone, to head home with a fresh commitment to worshiping God, even when our circumstances are less than ideal. If you read the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll see that this is a defining characteristic of the people of God. We praise him in all circumstances. And that's a choice. As the people of God, we need to choose to praise God for all he has done, all he continues to do, and all he will do in the future. 